0: We used to do these things when I was coming up in Young Life, which was my first ministry experience. You would do kind of crazy stuff for the high school students that you were doing it, and we did this thing called backwards thing. You'd do everything backwards. So what would you do right now if I said, stand for the benediction? (laughs) Would some of you be going, wow, lunch is early this morning. Sing songs of praise, do the benediction. It's all good, isn't it? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. And we pray, Lord, that what you're doing amongst us is you're creating a community of lovers that initiated and embraced by your love. The love of the triune God united to you, living that out in the power of the Spirit, you have initiated love so that we would respond because you first loved us by loving you with all our hearts, our souls, our bodies, our minds, every ounce of us, and we would love each other and we would love the world. So Lord, I pray that you would fill our minds, fill our hearts, give us eyes to see the love and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. Illumine, open our minds and open our hearts to the wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. We're returning this morning to the Gospel of Mark. We've taken a few weeks off as we prepared for Palm Sunday for Easter, doing an Easter series. Now we're returning to our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we are at Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. So hear the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going they had no leisure even to eat and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves now many saw them going out and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them when he went ashore he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things Were 5,000 men. Jesus here is depicted as the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd who satisfies his sheep, wandering, lonely, alienated, confused, lost in the desolate place, in the wilderness in which we live. I'm reminded in the Old Testament of how the psalmist always looked forward to this because life was lived in the wilderness. So the psalmist would said, oh God, you are my God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, my body faints for you in a dry and weary, a desolate place where the world's not going to feed me. The best things of life are not going to feed me. So my heart and my flesh cry out, faint, thirst for the living God. And of course, then what does the psalmist say? He says, behold I've beheld your power and your glory in the sanctuary because your love is better than life. My lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied you. How about Isaiah? Who says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, not even five loaves and two fish, who has nothing, who's bankrupt, who's empty, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money. And without cost. Mark is here showing us the good shepherd who satisfies the sheep. Mark's given us the theme of his gospel just to review for a second. When he said in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is all about Jesus. Here's kind of the hermeneutical key you have to remember in reading through the gospel. You need to look at it and say, what does it teach me? What does it show me? What does it reveal about Jesus? We are looking. That's why I prayed the way I do. I prayed that Jesus, by his spirit, would create a community of lovers. A community of grace-filled lovers Of Jesus Christ the gospel of mark is the story of the king of who this king is and what he came to do Tim Keller says he says the historical Christian premise is that Jesus's life death and resurrection form the central event of cosmic and human history as well as the central organizing principle of our lives the whole story of the world And of how we fit into it is most clearly understood through a careful, direct look at the story of Jesus. Do you hear that? The historical Christian premise. Here's our foundation, our beginning point. Is that in the person of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death on a cross, his resurrection, his ascension into glory. Forms the central event of all cosmic world and human history. And forms the central organizing principle of our lives. The question is, is it the central organizing principle of your life? Not a part of your life where you have I work or I have my family and I have my friends and I have what I do and then yes Jesus and the church is part of that. No. If Jesus is the cosmic event of all of history. He is to be the central organizing principle of our lives. And then our family and our friends and our work and our neighborhood and all that we do revolves around him. Because of Jesus, and this is Mark's message, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true king and his word is his personal address to us. It is not abstract information where you're meant to sit. See, I can kind of preach to the choir a little bit. We're not called to sit as simply good Presbyterians and kind of look like this and go, hmm, that's a good thought. Maybe I'll ponder that. Do you understand what the Word of God is? That the word of God is God's personal revelation, his living address, addressed to his people, demanding a response. And to only look at it as information is to respond, it is to say no. Because to not respond is to respond. This is God's address to you. The gospel of Mark is about the inbreaking of God's rule and his reign in the person of Jesus Christ into history in order to challenge, confront, and encourage us to make him the organizing principle of our lives. This morning, we come to that portion of Mark's gospel, very famous account, it's recorded for us in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the feeding of the 5,000, and commentators remind us, because it was 5,000 heads of household, 5,000 Men, that more than likely the people you have here flocking and coming and running to Jesus and the disciples here is more like 15 or 20,000 men and women and children. And they say this is of extreme significance because, just to give you the setting, Jesus here has taken his disciples and they've come away and they've gone to pretty, probably the northeast shore of the Lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee. They're close to, they're in a rural, remote place, and we'll cover that in just a second. They're close to the towns of Capernaum and Bethsaida, towns that probably had no more than two or three thousand in population. And yet here's Jesus flocking. As he comes, he comes and he comes. The theme is he comes as the good shepherd. And verse 34 gives us the theme. It says, When he went ashore and he saw a great crowd, how did it move Jesus' heart? It says he had compassion. And consistently throughout Mark's gospel, that word compassion means he is moved from the very bowels, the depths, the innards of his being. In other words, Jesus Christ is not miserly in his affections. I think sometimes we keep God and Jesus at a distance because we're not comfortable with intimacy. And yet Jesus lived for us, died for us, Was raised for us and has ascended over us because he wants nothing more than to be intimate and to have intimate communion with his people. And he sees that because as he sees them, as he goes ashore and he sees people, he does not withhold his affection. He's moved from the depths of his being. He has compassion on them because he sees them as leaderless, he sees them as wandering, he sees them as sheep, not having a shepherd. We're all sheep. And we know that. We understand our brokenness and our stupidity. We understand that. And one of the things this particular passage teaches us, and we're going to learn two things. We're going to learn two things from this passage. One, we're going to see our need for a shepherd in the wilderness. And then secondly, we're going to see how Jesus is the source of that satisfaction. He is the good shepherd, if you would, in the wilderness. Our need and Jesus as the source. First of all, our need. Let's set the stage. I think too often we look at this, and we look at this, we've all, how many of us grew up in Sunday school, feeding of the 5,000, and too often, and maybe I'm just confessing here, my picture, my visualization of it is, Jesus is going out and he's having a picnic with his disciples. They throw the red blanket out. There's Peter and James throwing the frisbee. There's John off there playing a little cornhole. They're out there throwing, and a few people gather around. It's kind of like a neighborhood block party. Here they come and stuff like that. And uh Uh-oh, we don't have enough food. What are we going to do? And Jesus, because he's Jesus, what does he do? He snaps his fingers, and all of a sudden, you've got, you know, everybody's fed and everybody's happy. Turn up the music. Can I tell you that is the most inaccurate picture of what is going on here that you could get? And if that's your Sunday school picture, please get rid of that picture. Because here's what's going on. Let's set the stage. First of all, verse 30 tells us that the apostles have just, they've returned from their mission trip. Jesus had sent them out. They had gone out. And they were coming back. And how do you come back? Okay? Think about ministry. Okay, we're, we're getting ready. We're, here we are, middle to late spring, and we're recruiting for summer, so what we're, in case you weren't paying attention when Andrew gave the announcements, let me repeat a couple of them for you, because we're recruiting now. Like, VBS is coming up, and yes, we want VBS workers, so talk to Sherry. Yes, we're going on missions trips this summer. Talk to Andrew. Now, what happens if you come, when you come back from these missions trips? You're tired. You're worn out. You're exhausted. You need a break. You need to rest. One of the things I love about Jesus as the good shepherd is he so moves into our ordinary humanness. The people need a break. They're tired. What does Jesus say? He says, let's withdraw. Come with me to a desolate place. And he repeats that desolate place several times here. Verse 31, verse 32, verse 35 Because that desolate place is, we're not going to the suburbs that is ripe with every coffee shop. We are going to the rural, we're getting away, we're getting away from it all, we're going to the wilderness. And then what happens next? I love how commentators put in a lot of, and the commentators tend to agree on this. They go, here's the disciples, they're coming back after this, and what do they do? They're they're crossing over the Sea of Galilee, and they see the crowd. They see somehow these fifteen to 20,000 people flocking around. And they go as we would go, some break. Tired, worn out, exhausted, looking forward to some downtime. What happens? It's interrupted. Crowds of people clamoring and demanding attention. I don't know what your heart is like when you're just dying for some downtime. I will be vulnerable enough to share with you what my heart is like. I wish my heart wasn't as selfish and self centered as it was. But, friends, you're led by somebody who has a black and dark heart who desperately needs the grace of God. Because here's what I'm like Ah, Sunday afternoon and Monday are coming. The Yankees are on 135. I got it. Followed by some Oklahoma City Thunder. I'm ready for some basketball. And what happens if I get interrupted somehow? By anything. Doesn't have to be ministry. If I get interrupted, you know what happens? I begin to clench my teeth. (laughs) Irritated, frustrated. Anybody like that, or am I the only one with such a dark black heart? What is it we need? We need the grace of God. And the grace of God is bigger. It's not less than. It's not less than, but it is way bigger than mere forgiveness. Please never deny or downplay or lessen or minimize the forgiveness of God, but please take the concept of the grace of God and blow it up, because it is bigger than just forgiveness. The grace of God is the transformative, kingly power of God unleashed in our life, and it begins with a new perspective. It begins with a new mindset. Again, commentators tell us, he says, think about the context of this. Mark has recorded for us just the beheading of John the Baptist. And I love what one commentator puts it. He says, what's going on here in the context of their mission? Herod's off in his palace throwing parties, carousing with his cronies, winking at all the pretty girls, beheading prophets. So part of the perspective on grace is recognize that we bear witness to the reality of grace. We minister and herald grace. We proclaim grace in the context of the wilderness. In the context of the rural, desolate place. And so, kind of echoing behind this passage from beginning to end, is the thought, could Jesus be this shepherd? Could he be the one that David, when he says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. When David said, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants after you. When David prayed, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Could this be the one? Could this be the king? And we have to understand what life in the wilderness and what our need really is. Because do you recognize that your hunger in the wilderness is much more than physical? That we all have a spiritual hunger. We all have what we could call a love hunger. We hunger to know we're okay. To know that we're accepted. To know that we're significant. To know that we count. To know that we matter in the world. To walk around knowing we're okay. And do you understand that Jesus, as the good shepherd, shows us this need and meets this need? My question is, do you recognize this need? Do you recognize your need and personalize it in the wilderness? Listen now how C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis explaining this wilderness experience, he said, most people... If they really learned how to look into their own hearts. See, there's application there. You've got to learn to look into your own hearts. He says, most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you. But they never keep their promise. And here is what it means to really find and meet Jesus, the King. And the wilderness is where this can usually happen. Something happens in your life that makes you look at the very foundations of your life, and you can come and realize, I'm going to die without God. It's not my career. It's not my family. It's not my friends. It's not my looks. It's not my success. It's not my achievements. It's not my money. It's none of those things. I am totally dependent on God. He is my bread of life, my water, my fountain of life. And I will die without him. Not just physically, but spiritually and humanly. You can't be what you were created to be as a human being without God. Do you recognize this? Do you look into your heart to notice your love hunger? Do you see your need for satisfaction in the wilderness? And if you do, where do you turn? Where, and more importantly, who is the source of satisfaction in the wilderness? Again, look with me at verse 34. Let's remind ourselves again of Jesus' response to our need. Because this is the foundation. Before we see what Jesus does, as a matter of fact, it's very important. I I wish I would have said this in the first service. I just thought of this now. But Paul Miller, who's written an excellent, excellent book called Love Walked Among Us. And he's talking about the person of Jesus. Paul Miller says that the way Jesus relates to others, there's three steps to it. He says what Jesus does is he first sees. He observes. He notices what's going on in people's lives. If you look at verse 34, it says, "He went ashore, he saw a great crowd." He hasn't done anything yet, but he has the ability to come out of himself enough to see the great crowd. So he knows there's a great crowd, 15 to 20,000 people are following me, are coming, are clamoring, are demanding for attention. These are 15 to 20,000 people with needs. With wants, with hurts, with hopes, with fears, with dreams, with baggage, with all sorts of stuff. He sees. Do you come out of yourself enough to see what the people around you are going through? The first step of love is seeing. Then it says he had compassion on them. He felt the appropriate emotion. On the crowd that here were like sheep without a shepherd... He sees their leaderlessness, he sees their lostness, he sees their exiled condition, and it draws forth from him great pity. He feels the appropriate... Sometimes, take when he went into the temple, and he saw the leadership there preventing Gentiles from coming in and being able to hear the wonderful words of life, the words of God. He sees, and what does he do? He gets angry. The action, the emotion, if you would, is based on what he sees, and then he takes action. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together looking at the action he takes. But the action is based on what he sees and what he feels and how that's appropriate. And there's real practical steps, and I give credit to Paul Miller with this, in terms of noticing this is exactly what Jesus does. He sees, he feels appropriately, and then he acts. Is it any wonder, by the way? why we need to pray for wisdom before every interaction that we have. We're so filled, we're so absorbed with ourselves and how we feel, we're not even aware of what's going on. So we don't even get through first base, so to speak. We don't even get to step one, seeing and observing what people are thinking, what they're feeling, what they're going through, touching base with their inner world, let alone feeling the appropriate thing and then taking the appropriate action. So we see what Jesus sees. We see what he feels. Now let's look at his action. And you've got to realize his action is steeped in Old Testament symbolism. His action is steeped in the richness of the illusions and the symbolism of the Old Testament. First of all, let me give you a little background to the story. The background of the story being the Exodus and Moses leading Israel and leading the people of God into the wilderness. And Moses, after his sin, finding out he's not going to be the one taking... The people into the promised land in numbers chapter 27 Moses is speaking to the Lord he knows he won't be the one to be the leader of Israel taking them into the promised land and he's inquiring to the Lord who will take them into the promised land and in verse 15 of numbers 27 it says Moses spoke to the Lord saying let the Lord the God of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Do you understand that, sheep? You need a shepherd. You can't live without one. You'll die without a shepherd. You need to have Moses know, I'm not going to shepherd them. So, Lord, appoint a man over the congregation who will lead? What does a shepherd do? He leads. He directs. He protects. He guides. He feeds. He nurtures. And who does the Lord appoint? The Lord appoints Joshua. And Joshua, whose name in the Septuagint, now the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Joshua's name is Jesus. God with us. Emmanuel. Jesus, the one who saves That's part of the background that's in this. Much later on in the context of the people's exile, you have the prophet Ezekiel. Al read from Ezekiel chapter 34 earlier. And it says there will be a time when there will be a shepherd Ezekiel is seeing. And he's seeing in the future. He doesn't know the name, but he knows there will be a shepherd who will lead the flock, who will guide and take care of and nurture the flock. In the context, and he associates, Associates it with the wilderness. Verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus is the greater Joshua who's appointed by God to lead the people. Jesus is the greater David. He's the one appointed by God to be the leader of the people in their exodus, out of exile. And he is God's servant David who provides rest for the people in the wilderness. Then if you jump down with me and look with me at verses 39 and 40, we get more details that are just ripe with Old Testament symbolism and background and imagery. It says, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And commentators say, wait a second, isn't there a contradiction here? That He's sitting on the green grass. I thought this was a desolate place. Commentators remind us, no, there's no contradiction here, but that more than likely, in the desolate place, in the rural place, this probably took place in the springtime. After the winter rains, before the land, the earth would be scorched by the heat of late spring and summer. so it's more than likely around the time of the Passover. And one commentator, William Lane, he puts it very well. He says, the reference to the green grass is not in contradiction to the description of the locale as wilderness. But the concept of the wilderness is broad enough to include pastures sufficient for the grazing of flocks, particularly after the winter rains. The transformation of the desert into a place of refreshment and life through the power of God is an aspect of the wilderness tradition pr- that is prominent in the pages of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Good Shepherd fulfilling these illusions fulfilling this imagery and what do we see he is about to he is inaugurating the transformation of the desert into a place that gives life what did he say the thief comes to steal I have come to give life refreshment shalom and give it to the full where's the source of satisfaction the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He leads me, David's saying this psalm, in the wilderness, where his enemies, including his son Absalom, are after his life. And he says, what? Oh, by the way, he leads me beside green pastures. The good shepherd satisfies. And then the symbolism continues, because it's not accidental. If you look with me at verse 40, what does he do? He has them sit down in the green grass and he puts them in groups of what? Of hundreds and fifties. And this harkens back to Exodus 18. Moses is overwhelmed with trying to take care of the congregation. And he does a good thing. You know what Moses does at that point? He listens to his father-in-law. His father-in-law comes and gives him real good advice and says, Moses, knock it off. You can't do all the work by yourself you need help. And in Exodus 18, the help is described this way. It says, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge over the people at all times. And William Lane says the arrangement of the group into these field groups of hundreds and of fifties recalls the order of the mosaic camp in the wilderness. And this detail is particularly striking because in the documents in Qumran, Qumran being the community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, says they use these subdivisions to describe true Israel, the remnant of Israel, assembled in the desert, in the period of the last days. In other words, the multitude who have been instructed concerning the kingdom is characterized as the people of the new exodus who have been summoned to the wilderness to experience messianic grace. In other words, Jesus is the new and greater Moses, transforming a leaderless flock into the new eschatological people of God. And how does he do this? What's the action that he takes? He saw, he felt, and he take, takes action. First of all, he tells his disciples, and this is a, probably a sermon all on its own. He tells the disciples, because the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, um, it's dinner time, you know these guys are probably getting hungry, and they're going to start to clamor for some food. Let's let's tell them to go to the diner down the street. Let's have somebody else do it. We don't want to do it ourselves. Sounds like the church, doesn't it? And Jesus says, um, "No, you do it. You give them something to eat." And of course, they respond like we respond all the time. See, you hear these calls: work with VBS, go on a missions trip, love your neighbor. Maybe open your home, have a neighbor over for dinner, show hospitality, do these things. What's the very first thing that we think? Now, be honest with me. First thing we think, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the resources. Disciples do the same thing. They said, Jesus, you know, it would cost us 200 denarii, basically a year's wages, a year's salary to go and feed all these people. And they're expecting... You know, In my mind, I'm thinking to myself, they're expecting Jesus to say, you know what, you're right. You don't have what it takes. You're off the hook. Don't worry about it. I'll wave my hand and we'll take care of this. Jesus never works that way. He says, what do you have? Bring it to me. I don't care how lowly your resources are. I don't care how little you think you have. I don't care how inadequate, incompetent, inferior you think you are. Bring them to me. They don't even recognize it. They've got a bread machine with them. You know, it's kind of like, go and love your neighbor. We only have the one who is love. And we walk around thinking we don't have the resources. And Jesus simply says, bring me what you've got. I will transform it into life and refreshment. Bring your five loaves and your two fish. Let me have them. I am going to create a kingdom out of it. And look at how he does it. Verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven, he says a blessing, he breaks the loaves and he gives them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and look what happened. They were satisfied. They were no longer empty. They were full. What did Jesus do? He he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. He did this in the wilderness, in the rural place, in the springtime, at the time of the Passover, foreshadowing what would become the new Passover meal, which, which is what does he do at the Passover meal, which is the Lord's Supper. He takes, he blesses, He breaks, and He gives. And He feeds with Himself. And of course, how does He feed? How does He take and bless and break and gives? Ultimately, He does that on the cross. Where He laid down His life, abandoned by God, broken and torn to pieces, so that he could be laid out and given for us, who could become whole through his brokenness, who can become reconciled, who can actually become new creations. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells them, do not work for food that perishes. Don't labor, don't strive, don't sweat and work for food that's only going to rot away. But work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How does Jesus, the good shepherd, lead, guide, nurture, and satisfy us? By becoming the bread that is broken, the bread that is torn to pieces so that we can become whole. On the cross, Jesus received the penalty for our sin. He took upon himself the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate desolate place, so that we could be redeemed and brought out of exile and never be without Emmanuel, God with us. What does this mean for us, practically speaking? Commentators remind us that what Jesus is doing here is he is inaugurating new creation. This is a sign. This refreshment and life, bringing life out of death, bringing refreshment out of the wilderness, feeding the 5,000. This is a foreshadowing. This is a taste. This is a sign of new creation. One commentator put it, God's kingdom is not simply a matter, a demonstration, a display of raw, naked power, but it's a demonstration of overflowing love. And he has here the two going inextricably together. See, it's easy to look at this miracle or any miracle. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to do it. We look at feeding the 5,000, cleansing the leper, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. Whatever it is Jesus is doing, we look at it as, well, of course, he's God. He's exhibiting his power and he's proving his divinity. Now, yes, he's divine. Yes, he's God. But he's doing so much more than that. Again, you've got to think of grace as bigger than that. This is the breaking in of his kingdom. And it is the beginning, the inauguration of the restoration of all things. And he has invited us. Do you know what he's invited us to do? For those for whom Jesus is the good shepherd. If Jesus is your good shepherd, it is not a matter of just going to heaven when you die. It is joining him as a family on mission for the renewal of all things. God is, through Jesus, implementing the new world and he's doing it through his family. He's doing it through his people. Bring to him your five loaves and two fishes, no matter how little you think they are. They don't have to be that significant. You don't have to be that eloquent. You don't have to be that together. You don't have to be that sharp. Bring your inadequacies to Jesus and let him transform them into life. And how do we do it? We, as Jesus, was taken and blessed and given and broken for us. We take and we bless and we give and we're broken for the world. We be for the world what Jesus is to us. We reflect the grace of God to the world that Jesus gives to us. See, what does this mean for us? It means joining with God. His mission of reconciling all things. What does that mean? Well, he's reconciling people to himself through evangelism. People who are exiled, who are alienated. He's saying, we get the opportunity to join with God in inviting people, be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. That's called evangelism. We also get the opportunity to join with God in reconciling people to themselves through embracing the love of God. And What does the love of God do? The love of God lets us know we're okay. We can delight in God and be content at ease. I'm not talking about a sinful love of yourself, but I'm talking about a healthy contentment with yourself because of the love of the triune God that has embraced you. You can be reconciled to yourself. And you know what happens when you're reconciled to God and you're reconciled to yourself? You can be reconciled to other people. See, when you're reconciled to yourself and content with yourself and you're not absorbed with, how do I sound? How do I look? What are my achievements? How am I doing? Does everybody think of me? All of that. You have the ability to come out of yourself Jesus calls that self-denial. You can come out of yourself and actually offer, join with God, be the family on mission with God, reconciling people to each other. Can you imagine what it would look like to see the left and the right, to see African-Americans, Caucasians, Anglos, Latinos, to see reconciled as a family under the headship of God? A reconciled people to God. I think Jesus prayed for that. What do you think? Jesus is inviting us as the good shepherd. Join with me. In the reconciliation of all things to God. And then finally reconciling the world to God. Through cultivating beauty. And justice. Goodness. Taking the created world. Do you recognize every good and perfect gift? is given from God. We have the opportunity of cultivating. We can become a community of love and grace, cultivating beauty and justice. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of his people so that they can be a beautiful people. See, what does new creation mean? New creation means being a family on mission, joining God in the renewal of all things. That's what you were built for. That's what will satisfy Living for yourself, it may look appealing. It may look, and of course, there is a level of attractiveness to it. If sin weren't attractive, we wouldn't be drawn to it. But it can never fulfill what it promises. You were built. You were created. You've been redeemed. You've been renewed. You are being restored to be a renewed image bearer, reflecting The glory of God joining with God in the renewal of all things. And that doesn't mean that you buy your, we're not supermen. We don't transform the world. That's our ordinary, that's as Jesus creates a community of lovers. Do you recognize how different the world might be if we really practice what the Bible calls love? I'm not talking the warm, sentimental love. I'm talking the patient kind, the kind of love that renounces resentment and envy and irritability and selfish. 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Do you have a vision that maybe Spruce Creek could be used by God? That Volusia County can look maybe a little bit more like the city of God, simply by us. See, I'm not calling you to do anything more than bring your five loaves and fish to your good shepherd. And that being, being a community of lovers, join with God as his family on mission for the renewal of all things. Father, thank you that you are our good shepherd and that you Desire, union, communion, and intimacy with us. Father, I praise you for sending Jesus. I'm amazed that he is the good shepherd, having compassion upon us, being moved, seeing how leaderless we were. And we need Jesus to be our hero, our champion, our leader. So we look to you and may we we truly surrender to your love so that we could be a community of lovers.